If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And actually it comes from verses 12 through 27. And you're familiar with this text, I'm sure, that the Apostle Paul gives, and we're going to make reference to it, but it kind of gives us this idea, and I'm going to read all uh, verses this morning. I just want to look at verse 12 and 13, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 27. But it says this, it says, The body, talking about the church, is a unit that is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Then it goes through and explains how the body is made up of many parts and each part is needed. So the hand can't say to one part of the body, I don't need you because they're all attached. They all work together. But I like what verse 27 says. Listen to what Paul says. He says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. Okay? We're all part of the body of Christ, and each one is part of it. This morning, as we talk about our purpose for 2018, we're talking about being in God's family. We're all part of this family. We're all part of the family of God. But I also want you to understand that being part of a family is something that we do together. It's something that we work together, and it takes work to do it. How many remember the movie or actually the original book that was written early in the 20th century, Cheaper by the Dozen? You probably remember that. You probably remember the movie that was Steve Martin was in it and all this. Great movie, funny movie. And as this couple, Frank and Lillian Gilbreth, uh, kind of has some background with it, uh, two of the 12 kids wrote the book, Cheaper by the Dozen. If you've seen the movie, it, like I said, it's a great movie. But they dedicated the book as follows. It says, To dad, who only reared 12 children. To a mother, who reared 12 only children. You know, how nice, you know. And as these couple got together, each of these 12 kids, Anne, Mary, Ernestine, Martha, Frank, Bill, Lil, original there, Dan, Jack, Bob, and June, or Jane, was special. And it makes it very clear that each one was special, each one was unique in their own way. And it was very important to these very sleep-depraved parents, raising 12 kids, you can imagine. These two newlyweds in the book and on the movie are, are on a train. They're on their honeymoon. They just got married, and they're sitting there holding hands, as newlywed couples do. And they're talking about what a wonderful life they're going to have. And as they're traveling along, they're talking, and they're saying, Lil says this, Lily says this, I want a great big family. Or he says, I want a great big family, and she agrees. She says, we'll have children all over the house, from the basement to the attic. And as they rode into this new life, they agreed to have 12 kids. Now, can you imagine agreeing to that? We're going to have 12 kids. And in fact, on a piece of paper, he wrote, don't forget to have six boys and six girls. And over the next 17 years, they did exactly that. Had six boys and six girls. But what I love about the movie, and if you watch the movie with Steve Martin, it shows that each one of these kids are very important to them, and they make up the family. Last week, we talked about and we discovered that God has put us here with a purpose of Him, to love Him, for us to worship Him, and Him to love us. In other words, we call that worship. 
We call it worshiping our Savior. We were planned for God's pleasure. And it doesn't give God any more pleasure than when we come together as a family to worship our Lord and Savior, to be in His presence. Now we're on to our other purpose. We are formed to be a unique part of His family, or as Paul says it, the body of Christ. Hebrews 2.10 says so specifically, he says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So what Christ suffered for us makes it possible for us to do what we do. And that is worship and be part of this family. I've always liked the theme throughout Scripture and how it's played out through Scripture, the theme of adoption that you read. I love how it portrays it, especially in the book of Ephesians. If you read through that book, you notice how his unchanging plan has always been and always will be to adopt us into his family. He wants us to be part of this King of King and Lord of Lords family one day by bringing us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the only way to be part of his family, is to come through Jesus. Actually, think about it. The entire Bible, the story of God building and restoring a family. Not just a family that's here for a little while, then breaks apart, but you and I are in his mind as part of this integral family, this integral group, an eternal group, this forever kind of family. And just picture that and think about that for just a second as we go on about being part of this family forever, for eternity, in heaven with Jesus and God our Father. Now, there's something that I know over years of ministry and watching families work on being families. And I know it takes work for families to be good families. And they build their own families. I've seen families walk in with diaper bags and they have their car seats and they have all these things. I see people babysitting for other kids to give these parents breaks. I've seen parents administer discipline to their children. I've seen where parents should have administered discipline to their children. You know, give and take there. I've seen you spend time. I've seen people spend money. I've seen people spend energy in making a family strong and making a family healthy. Building a good family takes work. It always has been. It always will be. I'm talking about the nuclear family, the families we have in our homes, to keeping them all together. But here as we study this second purpose or this third purpose of God that's even more true, we need to focus on being his family and we need to work on it. 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, he says this, show proper respect to everyone. He says, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay? So the first thing I want you to see is this in your outline, love your spiritual family. Sounds easy, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds easy to say, love your spiritual family. Have you looked at some of you people lately? Have you dealt with some of you people lately? I mean, honestly, I'm not as easy to love as this face looks, right? Don't laugh at that. Who said that? Oh, Jimmy Becker hiding in the booth. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. See, this is a purpose that we need to have, that is to love this family we call the body of Christ, that we call the family of God. And here God's means our church. 
It means a Christian church, a church of Christ. He's even talking about churches of other believers that we are to love. It's God's purpose for this place to be a strong, to be a healthy family together and to do the necessary work called upon us to do to accomplish that. I say this as kindly as I can, so listen to it with an open heart. But simply this, if you are part of this church family, and you're not doing your fair share of the work, ready for this? Get your act together. I mean, get your act together. Because it takes a family, it takes all of us working together to accomplish this. I say that as lovingly as I can. I heard one minister in his first sermon at his church And I couldn't believe he said it, but he did. He says, if you're in this church and you're sitting in this pew and you're not doing anything, he goes, get out of the way so somebody can have your seat that's actually going to work for God. I took a little guts, you know, but it's true. It's true. Rick Warren, who preaches with conviction on this idea about divine purpose, shares several reasons why we need to do the work necessary to develop a love for his family. He says, first of all, God is love and it makes us more like him. And secondly, God simply wants his children to get along. I mean, you put preschoolers together, two or three in the same room for a short amount of time, what happens? They want the same toy. There could be hundreds of toys in there. And folks, Christians are no different. Adults are no different. You put a group of people together long enough, somebody is going to get rubbed the wrong way. I remember as a child, with some of the friction that came up with my brothers. And I was the, not the oldest, but I was the biggest. So that helped. So anytime there was a fight, old Kirk came in and helped settle it. And there were times when I was doing that, my mom or my dad would come in and tell us to shake hands and say you're sorry. I remember teachers saying that. I want you to shake hands and say you're sorry. You know you didn't mean it. I'm sorry. It was all to avoid going to the principal or going to the room for a spanking. You do anything to get out of it. False repentance. I guess false repentance is better than no repentance at all. I can remember times I was saying sorry, and I know the veins of my neck are standing out. My fence are still clenched. Yeah, I'm sorry, but this is going to continue as soon as mom walks out of the room. You know. But this is what God desires from us. This is what God wants from us. True love for each other. For you see, in heaven, we're going to love God forever. That's easy. I mean, that's easy. We're going to love God forever. We're going to worship God forever. Here's where it's going to get hard because we have a hard time doing it on earth. We're going to love our neighbors forever. Oops. We're going to love each other forever. So right here, right now, in this place, under human circumstances, we're supposed to practice loving one another. It's a practice. We don't always get it right, but it's a practice. There's nothing better than working out our differences. There's nothing better than Christian temper tantrums. I was talking to a minister yesterday that I'm going to do a funeral over there tomorrow for a friend of mine. And he was showing me around the church where they'd done some new work. Uh, They converted the old fellowship hall actually into a coffee area. This is a church of 38 people. 38 people are trying to reach a town to 600. And they open this area up. They paint it. Now, 
it was gorgeous except for this blue they put on the wall. I told Son, I said, I don't know where they got that idea, but it's ugly, but I didn't say that. But they had this all ready to go. They had it approved. They had it paid for even. And one of the board members came in and threw a major temper tantrum. He goes, I'm not going to tell you who it is. And I said, let me guess. I spent 10 years there total. I said, I can probably guess who it was. But then after the board revoted, which that would have ticked me off, revoted, passed unanimous of everybody except one no vote. He voted no. He came back a couple weeks later and actually apologized. I'm thinking, but why did you throw the temper tantrum in the first place? Why did it have to happen in the first place? Because I know, because somebody didn't say hi to me. Somebody didn't say hi to me at the ball game Friday night. Three people down, same row. She didn't say hi to me. I was offended. I was heartbroken. But I survived. But it happens. We don't say hi at the store. We don't say hi at the mall. We didn't wave at certain people. And we start throwing this Christian temper tantrum because my problems are always bigger than your problems. And I don't care you didn't wave at me because you was on the way to the hospital, somebody having open heart surgery. You was on the way to somebody to talk to somebody about having cancer. You was on your way. You spent all day, all night with a family, with somebody passing away. And your whole temper tantrum is so much more important than all that. And it says we have to work at loving, work at forgiving in these circumstances. Can I say something? It's work. Sometimes it's hard work. But the Bible calls us to do these things. What exactly is the nature of fellowship which God intends for us to experience here? What does God want from us here? The word worship is often relegated to this narrow idea of sometimes that of just maybe a sermon and some music. We get together for offering and communion, and we say that's worship. And that is part of it. And the same thing happens here. And we're going to have fellowship here in a few minutes as we get together and we talk out here in the main area. Either some go to Sunday school or some get ready to leave. We're going to talk about the difference in MacBooks or PCs. We're going to talk the difference about whether what the Democrats are doing or what they're not doing or the Republicans are doing or what they're not doing or why our favorite baseball team couldn't win the whole World Series last year. Man, did you see that Illinois game this weekend? Did you see the Indiana game? And we call that fellowship. So let me ask you that. Is that fellowship? Is that the fellowship God is calling us to? And I'm going to tell you right here, right now, not really. I don't believe it is. If that's the case, then I have church fellowship. Every time I go have coffee at Perrysville in the morning, we sit around and chew the fat. If that's what we're calling church fellowship. It's not what God is calling us to. But what is fellowship? I think the Bible gives us this loftier definition in 1 John 4.21 of what that fellowship is. Where he says this, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. The person who loves God must also love other believers. So let's put this bar just a little bit higher than talking about the different PCs and MacBooks or the Cubbies and the Cardinals or Republicans and Democrats. That's down here. Let's put this bar a little bit higher and say that fellowship is our choosing to love God's family. Let's set the standard a little bit higher. Now, I understand this can all be a little vague. 
It can all be a little bit undefined even at times. So let's try to proceed biblically in what we have and make this as practical as we can. And the Apostle Paul helps us with this verse. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he says he's writing so that you'll know how to live in the family of God. So the first thing I want you to see as part of this is the family, that family is the church. This is our family, the family of God. So what is the church? You've heard me say it before, and I'm going to say it again. The church is not this building. Please hear that. The church is not the building because we don't own it. And you're saying, no, wait a minute, we're paying for it. No. God owns this church. Jesus paid for this church with his blood. And I know you put sweat equity into this building, and you're making sacrifices to pay for this building, but you still not buy this church with your blood. It belongs to God. It's not an institution. It's not an organization. It's not a club. It's a family. Again, from Rick Warren, he explains to people this way. He says, church is not a place you go to. Church is a family you belong to. Man, every Sunday should be a family reunion when we get together. And so we must talk about four levels of belonging very quickly. First level. The first is membership. And that is simply choosing to belong to the family of God here. And understand, this is something all churches struggle with because people move, people transfer, people stay a while, then they church hop because something's going on or this or that happens. There's a joke among the Baptist denomination where some statistician said this. He says, according to our membership records, there are more Baptists than there are people. And that could be said the same for our church. I mean, there's more people than there are actually members because we never take them off the rolls, okay? But I want to encourage you today to be, a pro, be as proactive as you can about joining the church, about becoming part of the church right here because we are stronger together. We are stronger we are, when we are committed to the spiritual body that Christ has given to us. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 2.19. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He says, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, members of his family. You are members of God's very own family. You belong in God's household along with every other Christian. You see, we end up in our physical families by default, We end up in our nuclear families by default. But get this, we have to enter into God's family by choice. You have to enter into God's family by choice. It's your choice to do it. You raise your hand, you make a decision, you step up to the plate. You come forward and you do those things. It's your choice. And again, I say this as kindly as I can. But I guess you have to expect it from the preacher, so I'll just say it. Bear in mind this, the church, the Christian church, Church of Christ, is the bride of Christ. It says that in Revelation, that the church is a bride adorned for him. So when we don't belong to the church, when we don't belong to the church family, when we don't attend church and we're away from the church, because people say, well, I can worship God doing this, I can worship God doing that, I don't need to be in this church, what we're saying essentially is this. Well, Jesus, I love you, but I don't care much for your bride. 
I don't care much for your church. And we have to be careful because this church is the bride of Christ. Saddleback Church in their programs came up with metaphors about this, trying to explain how this works. And I like what they said. They said, trying to be a football player without a team. You can't be a football player without a team. A tuba player with no band. A bee without a hive. A soldier with no platoon. And then he sums it up this way. In your outline it says this. A Christian without a church family is an orphan. God meant for us to be part of a family. I like a Reader's Digest story that was in Reader's Digest several years ago about this guy walking through the jungle. He's walking through the jungle. He finds this huge rhinoceros and this little pygmy standing beside it with a spear. This guy looks at this pygmy and goes, did you kill this big rhinoceros? And the guy says, yep, I did. And the guy looks at him and goes, how did you do it? How did you do it? He goes, with my club. The guy looked at this pygmy and goes, with your club? He goes, how big is your club? He goes, oh, there's about 90 of us. <laughs> you see, it doesn't matter how big I am. It's about what we do together as a family. So you see, there is power in this family. There is power in this church body. You cannot, cannot be matched in our home by yourself, sitting in a tree, in a tree, around a tree, you know, close to a tree. It's not going to matter. So we need to understand one key reason why it's important to be a member is because the church meets our needs. But also get this, and then we meet the needs of each other. We don't only meet the needs, but by being part of the family, we meet each other's needs. Romans 12, 5, Paul says, In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I mean, there's all the time people are having weddings where a person joins a family in a public way. And we as a church family have that same thing, but it's called baptism. Somebody's baptized into the family of God and to all this and they become part of our family. Rick Warren says there was a girl that came up to him about this. He preached on this and she walks up and she goes, Pastor, when can I be hypnotized? You know, she's not quite ready to be baptized yet. You know, but that's the way it is. In verse 13 of our text, 12, 13 says this, For we're all baptized by one spirit, so to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. As our public declaration of joining a family, about loving the family, about being loyal to it, so we've got to understand, one, it's our choice. The second thing is this. The second level is friendship and sharing. And this goes clear back to the Garden of Eden that we're made for sharing everything going up. And you know what it's like. Remember, growing up, you had to share your toys with your family and your brothers and sisters. We didn't always like it. Bob Hope grew up in a family with lots of brothers. He once said this. He says, we handed down pants until the, seat, the seats of the pants were so threadbare, I could sit down on a dime and tell if it was heads or tails. That's pretty thin. I like what Bernie Mac said. He's a comedian. I don't know if you've ever watched him on TV. I don't like his TV sitcoms, but he's a funny comedian. He says this. There were 13 kids in my family. He said, we ate our cereal with a fork so we could pass the milk on down to our younger brothers and sisters. Other than being really gross, that's the way it is. Acts 2.44 describes the New Testament church. I love the description. It says all the believers met together constantly and shared everything with each other. 
We met together constantly and met together with each other. Something wonderful happens when a church gets together and shares together. And some of you had friendships in this church for 20, 25, even more years than that. And there's been give and take from that, back and forth, sustaining that friendship. One thing that's true is this, that friendship and the sharing will be as good as we make it to be. That friendship will be as good as we mean for it to be. We know how to make friends. Unfortunately, we know how to lose friends. And we either invest the time in what we're going to do or we go home and watch TV. What's one of the biggest things in the world today that keeps us from making those friendships? Some of them might say TV, and I'll agree. You know another one is? The automatic garage door opener. You say, what? No, wait a minute. You see, we can quarter mile down the road, we can open our garage door, we can speed up, pull in, shut the door before our neighbors even sees we're home. Then we go in and turn the TV on, and there's no fellowship with our neighbors. Now, my neighbors, they don't care. They're dead. Doesn't make any difference. I still talk to a few of them on the way in, on the way out. You know, good to see you, Cornelius. That is a guy right on the corner where I live. You know, we have fellowship in the summer and this fall where I mow, you know, keep them, keep their houses look nice. You see, there's a lot of things that we could share with each other. I want to give you three. Actually, four, if you happen to own a vacation home in Hawaii and you want to share that with your preacher. But enough about the material. The first one is this, our experiences. We need to share our experiences with one another. Donald Rumsfeld, our nation's former Secretary of State, once quoted a couple years ago saying this. He says, don't make all the same old mistakes the last team in Washington made. Try to make all new mistakes. And we're going to make mistakes. I'm sure back then Jay Leno had a great time with that. And you know what? I love sitting in board meetings. I love having those board meetings where we have new people come in and they give us these fresh new ideas and they allow us to think about what we're doing. And when that happens, I think it just makes everything so much better. And yes, even though we're going to have these things, we're going to make mistakes. Proverbs 27, 17 says this about sharing with each other. It says, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We've got to share our experiences with one another. Secondly, share our homes. It's worship and it's family, but it's not fellowship all the time. We get into some fellowship across the hall when we're eating. I get that. We're going to have it in the foyer about 1030. I get that. But true fellowship happens in smaller groups. The ladies had some fellowship together over at the women's retreat this weekend. Very little sleep, I understand, but they had fellowship. You know, and that's what it takes to do what God is calling us to do. First Peter 4 9 says, offer hospitality. In other words, open your homes to one another without grumbling. Here's the third one. God's word invites us to share our problems. It, it really does. There's an old line that goes, when you share a joy, it's doubled. When you share a problem, it's cut in half. And I'm sure we can all remember times of crisis in our family where a church friend simply stopped by and was just there. Moments like those are huge. We just can't put a price tag on them. And this kind of fellowship happens most likely away from here in our homes or away from church. Hebrews 10.25 says this, Let us not give up the habit of meeting together. Instead, let us encourage one another. You see, people lose their jobs and the church family is there. Moms miscarry and the church comes by. 
teenagers get arrested and we go to the families and we say, we're here and we just want to encourage them. We don't say or we shouldn't say, well, you saw that one coming. You know, that's not what to say, but we're there with them. The last one is partnership. It's doing my part. Someone said that church isn't just a spiritual spa where we come and soak. We're not like, I think it was MasterCard that says membership has its privileges. You know, membership means we do what God has asked us to do. It's a place of cooperative work. Remember that illustration about cheaper by the dozen? It said in the book, even the youngest child had responsibilities. It said the youngest kids, the smallest kid, dusted all the low furniture. You know, so they all had a job to do. And I'm told there are 58 different references in the New Testament to the idea of everyone working shoulder to shoulder. And that is love and action. Someone said this, Rick Warren said this, you share your heart, that's level two. You do your part, that's level three. You see, we do what God has called us to do. Paul says, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. We are partners working together. And the good news even here is this in your outline is that God has put the necessary people in this place. I truly believe that. We have the talent needed right here to do what God has called us to do, to be a complete and healthy and thriving body, family of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Really quickly, I read a minister had this new idea. It's called the 3101 principle. And I read through it and I thought, I kind of like this. 3101. The three is you attend church three times a month. Already giving you a Sunday off. You like that? You attend church three times a month. You give 10% that God asks us to give. And you get involved in one ministry, one mission in the church or of the church. 3101. Church three times a month. You give your 10%, you get involved in one ministry or mission. Can you imagine what the church would look like if we did that? If we truly believed in that? I told you I'd kind of be meddling in this. In a perfect world, we get involved in the church and all the jobs and all the committees are fun. I mean, I'm sure our board members would say, join the board, it'll be fun. You have a lot of fun, be the board chairman, right, Scott? You know, all the church work isn't always fun. Unplugging toilets isn't always fun. Cleaning up puke isn't always fun. Cleaning up pews isn't always fun. It's just what happens. There's grunge jobs, and it's more fun to eat off the plates at the potluck than actually clean up after the potluck. Some committee meetings are boring. They're long. They're tedious. Some jobs involve cleaning up. I get that. It can't always be fun around the family workbench, but get this. Life lesson. If it's being done with the right heart and the right attitude, anything can be fun. I don't care if you're sweating, working hard. If you're doing it together, you're going to have fun together. Mother Teresa was once asked how she faced all the despair and destruction and death that she had to deal with in Calcutta. And she said there wasn't a lot of Cadillacs or caviar work to be done in Calcutta. But her simple answer was this, how she faced all this. She said, every person I bathe, every person I bandage, I imagine seeing the face of Jesus and I do it for him. Can you imagine everything we do? 
the little kids that came in on Wednesday, we see the face of Jesus and we do it for them. Make a difference, wouldn't it? Make a huge difference. Fourth level. The final level of fellowship is connection. Loving unbelievers and believers like family. It's understanding. It's empathy. It's association. We can all recall those chores and duties we did for family members simply because it was the right thing to do. And maybe we didn't feel like doing it when we were doing it. We knew it wasn't going to be fun. But sometimes the loving thing is despite our selfish feelings. Acts 17, 28 says this, For in him we live and move and have our being. So we connect. We do things we don't really like. We do things we kind of have to do, but we do it in love. And then understand this. Love is often, here's this word again, is a discipline. It's that word we don't like. Love is a discipline. So we have to connect. So what is connection? It is people who are willing to do the hard things. It is doing things for people that's hard to do things for them. It's like waiting for hours in a hospital waiting room while surgery is going on. It's picking people up at the airport. It's loaning money without expectations. It's praying specifically for certain things in a time and a need in their life. A connection is this daily praying. Maybe it's sending a card. Maybe it's making a call, stopping by to see someone, driving over to the hospital. Connection is groups of people rallying around when someone loses a loved one. This week I had the opportunity and I sent it out to the leaders that I was going over to Crawfordsville on Tuesday to be with a lady and her family that was passing away. It was going to be close. So I drove over Tuesday, spent a couple of hours there and we got to talk. She was able to talk and I've known for a year, year and a half that I was going to do her funeral. And I sat there and visited with her, and she told me, she was, I don't want this funeral to be crying. I don't want that. I want it to be a happy time and all this. And we talked. And you could tell she was getting tired, so we gave her some morphine. She went to sleep. I went back Thursday, and she was bedridden, unconscious. She died later that evening. And you know what? I know in somewhere she has a collection of over 100 dolls that she collected over a lifetime. She had all this stuff that I knew she had at one time. But you know what she wanted? in her last few hours, in her last days. She wanted those she loved, those she knew to be around her. She wanted family and friends. And that's what, it, that's what it is. That's what it means that we come together as a family. What people want just before they die, is that what they, that's what they want. But if we will be that family that truly loves, that truly surrounds this community, I mean right here, can you imagine if we were that kind of church, if we were that kind of people, that one day people truly saw who we really are, and that's a biblical idea of what fellowship is, being part of the family is, that one day instead of people wanting to go to the bars, they want to come to the church and feel that love. There was once a minister who did a whole sermon series on the sitcom Cheers. You guys know what that, have you guys ever seen that sitcom Cheers? Loved that show. Loved that show. How many remember Norm? Remember where he sat? Same stool, same place in the bar. I feel horrible doing this, but I'm going to compare the church to a bar, okay? And I'm going to say the bar had it right, okay? What happened every day and Norm went to the bar every day. Thank you. Everybody in the bar said, hey, Norm. Now, what would happen in the church? 
What would happen in the church when people started coming to the church, and we knew they were coming from the bars, we knew that they had lives that were shambles, we knew that they were backsliders, we knew they're sinners, and as soon as they walked through the door, we did exactly that. Hey, Norm, and accepted them for who they are and what they are. Can you imagine a church like that? I can, because I truly believe that's the kind of church God wants. That's the kind of fellowship God wants. That's the kind of worship God wants. But it starts with us choosing to connect with his church.